Ummagyanatimirandasya Gyananjanasalakaya Chakshurmilitam Jenatasmai Sri Gurave Namaha Ajanulam Bitta Bhujo Kanakabadatu Sankitanayakapitaro Kamalaya Takshu Vishvambaro Yuga Baro Vishvambaro Yuga Baro Yuga Dharma Palo Bande Jagat Priyakaro Karuna Bhuttaro Bande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sodito Gododai Pushpavanto Chitro Sando Tumonudo Deyam Sada Paribhapnam Vishtadoham Tirtas Padam Sivabhaniti Nutam Sharanam Pratyatiham Pranatapala Plavadipotam Vande Mahapurushate Charanada Vindam Vande Mahapurushate Charanada Vindam Chakva Sudhus Chadasurepsita Raja Lakshmim Dharmishta Arya Vachasa Yadagardadanyam Mayamrigam Taitaipsita Manvadhavad Vande Mahapurushate Charanada Vindam He Krishna Karuna Sindho Dina Bandhu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namustute Tapta Kanchana Gaurangi Radhe Vindavanishuri Vishabhanu Sude Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Shri Guri Vashna Guru Parampara Ki Jai Kaur Bhakta Vindu Ki Jai Kaur Premanande So we spoke a little this morning about that which is not bhakti in and of itself but that which unless it develops within us in the context of bhakti, we will never attain the goal, prem, prayojan. And it was this topic that Sri Rupa Goswami began his his instructions in Upadesha Amrita with Vachu Vegam, Manasa Kroda Vegam, Jiva Vegam, Udara Pasta Vegam, Etan Vegam, Yovisahetadira, so, again, there may be ways to control the senses and mind, these urges and so forth, and we may become expert at it, as a matter of fact, and never attain bhakti. So, it is useless. At the same time, if in the context of bhakti, this doesn't develop within us, we'll never attain prayam. So, we should not make effort to control the mind and senses. This is all Ganmarg. This is very peculiar <laughs> to hear. And often in teaching about bhakti, we'll find an inordinate emphasis on such, controlling the mind, controlling the senses, because we come into the bhakti marg from the two tracks that our material life runs on, that is, bog and tyag, which are related to karma and gyan. That's why these are more uh, popular in one sense. And 
So sometimes coming in the school of, of bhakti, without good company, good sangha, sadhu sangha, good association, we'll naturally gravitate towards the fringe and some influence of jnana and karma will be found even in many people speaking about bhakti. So in, in a sense, in an inordinate way, there will be a stress on aspects of uh, things that should come about, as I say, by our culture of bhakti, by our krishnanu shilanam, but uh, emphasis on them in an inordinate way, such that bhakti gets put in the background and the influence of jnana and karma come to the to the surface. So with regard to controlling the mind and the senses, sometimes you'll find this is a strong emphasis. The emphasis should be then what? The, should, the emphasis should be on hearing and chanting and embracing uh, all that uh, bhakti has to do with. And particularly the center of that is, of course, sadhusanga, good association. And then the implication is what? That these things will come about naturally. And a fellow asked me the other day that um, isn't life about paying attention to every moment and living in the, the now, so to speak, be here now, as they used to say. And I it's admitted, yes, certainly that's what it's about. The mind, we talked a little bit about the mind this morning, is uh, moving in so many directions and distracting us from what's happening at every given moment such that we cannot fully appreciate each and every moment, each and every aspect of of life. So without getting the full picture, then we're always looking for something else to do. It's taking, this isn't good enough, this isn't good enough, and so forth. Um, and so in one sense, yes, life is about getting the most out of each moment and concentrating. And so there's a thing now that this, that's in psychology that's uh, being discussed, and a devotee brought it up to me the other day. And uh, it's a, I don't know what the maybe technical term is, but more of a slang term of it is... is, is uh, flow? Yeah, the flow. Right. To get into the flow or something like that. So you become, implications, you become absorbed in a particular thing, whatever it may be. And and the the absorption in that particular thing brings with it a certain kind of a power that enables one to effortlessly almost perform the activity and excel in that, whether it be in sports or or um, any field. And so there's a fair amount of psychological uh, research and whatnot about that. And so and you'll find this idea in Buddhism a lot, mindfulness and so forth. So there's much to be said about this, but I... The answer to this question in a particular way, given our vantage point, our perspective, and that was that if we come to a mindfulness, if you want to call it that, or the flow of being uh, living in the moment and, and not being distracted by the mind from whatever it is we may be doing at every moment, how we accomplish that will determine what we perceive every moment holds for us. Do you follow me? If we accomplish that in the context of bhakti, we'll get a certain picture of what 
life holds. If we accomplish that by gyan or by similar practices in the Buddhist tradition and so forth, or whatever may come up in modern psychology and so forth, we are not. We may still the mind and um, get more out of the moment, but we are not going to see the same picture of life. We are not going to get the same experience of life that Rupa Goswami is talking about, Sanatana Goswami, our charges, what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu experienced. So the, the sadhana is, is important. So this, we discussed this a little bit, of course, this morning. The idea of controlling the mind and the senses in the context of bhakti. The emphasis should be on bhakti. This is about bhakti negatively. It is anukul, or pratikul, pratikul. In the context of sharanagati, pratikul. In the context of being a, a sharanagata, a surrendered soul. In the context of establishing, that means to say, the stage on which the drama of bhakti is performed. We have to erect in our heart this stage of sharanagati. Then the drama of Krishna Leela will be appearing there soon, like they say, coming to a theater near you soon. So the theater of the heart. We want Krishna Leela to be performed there, but we have to erect the stage, and the stage is sharanagati. On this stage, the drama of bhakti takes place. In Ruchi Bhakti, this is established in Shayakairabha Chandrika Bhattaram. Something is coming from the other side, tangibly. There, the Jagat Ishwar, who, as we mentioned this morning, is mostly sleeping, the Paramatma, is rather boring. The Shristi Lila is rather, not a very exciting affair to him, <laughs> although it's his only. Real Leela, it's, it's, it's not very exciting. He's only a witness there. <laughs> and what does he witness? It's not very appealing. And in Krishna Leela, he's never going to sleep. They're keeping him awake all the time. They are so interested in what he wants. If someone's always interested in what you want, then they're going to get your attention. So the Brajabhasins, they have shown us the example how to get the attention of Bhagawan. So, in Ruchi, the Jagadishwar is replaced with the Pranishwar. Therefore, Mahaprabhu said, Nadanam Nadanam Nasundarim Kovitamba Jagadish Kamaye. I have, oh Jagadish, goodbye. And he's parting with him now, taking you out of my heart. So, years ago, a fellow wrote a book called Conversations with the Paramatma. And was in another institution, Godi Institution. Somebody asked me about it. I said, because it was being put forward as something very high. He's having conversation with the Paramatma. My response was that we're not interested in that. This is not our interest in Godi Vaishnava to have conversation. Our only interest in conversation with him is farewell, bidai, goodbye, <laughs> and bring Bajanda Nandan, Nanda Tanuja in the heart. Mahaprabhu was saying in Ruchi, goodbye. This all has to do with the Jagadishwar. Dhanam, Janam, Sundarim, and collecting useless knowledge also. Followers, wealth, the opposite sex, and so forth. It's all what the world is about. This is the Jagadishwar is like witnessing. It's, 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 
the boring task of overseeing such, providing facility for such, which is all about no interest in him other than being the order supplier. So uh, Mahaprabhu is bidding farewell to him. These things I have no interest in, and so I have no... Your, your concern, your jurisdiction, I'm no longer under that. Mama Janmani Janmanishwari. And I don't even want mukti. I don't even want to get out of the... I don't, I'm so out of the world that I don't want to get out of it. I can be in it. I can be in it, but not of it. So Mama Janmani Janmanishwari. Ishwari, he says here, means Pranishwar. So he says goodbye to the Jagadishwar and hello to the Pranishwar. He's got, because Mama Janmani Janmanishwari Babatad Bhaktir. Ahaituki. Ahaituki. He's doing something now also, but he has no motive. You understand? All the other work is motivated. This is unmotivated. Ahaituki. And it is Bhakti. So there must be a lord who presides over Ahaituki Bhakti. And it is not the Jagadishwar. But this is the lord of, of his life now, the Pranishwar. And he identifies him, of course, in the next verse. Ainanda Tanuja Kinkaram. He says, I want to live in the house of Nanda Maharaj. Nanda Tanu Ja. Who's Ja? From the Tanu of Nanda. Who's born from the body of bliss. Nanda means bliss. Nanda. And Nanda means Nanda Maharaj. I want to live in the house of Nanda Maharaj. He's saying. This is a young girl will live in the house of the man that uh, uh, that she marries, the father's house, the, the husband's father. This is, of course, in times gone by, uh, that uh, the young girl will marry and live in the house of her husband's father in that family. So in the spirit of Gopi, of Radha, he's saying, I want to live in the house of Nanda Maharaj. I want to be a kinkara, a maidservant there. I want to marry Krishna. In other words, he's saying, this is his spirit. So, at any rate, this is our interest, high ideal, and and, and we'll, we'll go there by good company, by sadhusanga, by hearing, by chanting, and uh, all these things, controlling the mind and senses, they'll all fall into place naturally through such. And... So when we go about accomplishing this task of controlling the mind and senses in the context of bhakti, we do it such that it's a byproduct of bhakti. And when we come to a state, if you want to call it that, of mindfulness, then the method by which we've arrived at it, being otherworldly, if you will, will allow us to see the world from a, from a, a very uh, different vantage point than if we can arrive at a state of mindfulness or still mind by any other method. And there are other methods for arriving at that, which we feel have no real spiritual currency, no real purchasing power for real estate. In the land beyond death, you may stop death, but to live there, to live beyond death. To do, in other words, we know what life is. It's, it's about love. 
relationships, emotions, and so forth. So to stop death is one thing. But to live, we want a spiritual life, not just to end life as we know it. We want life as we know it. <laughs> That's what we want. But we can't, it's not working because it's off-center. So you put the right center and then you can have it, all of that. Everything that had, this is the whole idea of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. It's, as I said this morning, it's a very human form of Vedanta, where humanity and Vedanta come together. It's a spiritual humanism, if you will. And the God himself is in human-like form. So, very important then to understand this very subtle point. We want to arrive at controlled mind and senses in the context of bhakti. And bhakti is much more than that. It really begins bhakti proper after that's accomplished, but not that we will accomplish that by some other means and then do bhakti. No, no other means for that matter of arriving there will be as comprehensive as bhakti. Because after all, Wherever your heart goes, that's where your mind goes. That's where your senses go. So, if we empty our heart of all desire, then we'll have nothing to think about and nothing to pursue with our senses because it is the force of desire that's causing us to move about and interact with sense objects and so forth. So, if you empty your heart out of all desire then you will arrive at a state of controlled mind and controlled senses. That's true, but rather difficult to do, for one. And secondly, it's not, and therefore it's not a very user-friendly type of approach. And it's unnatural. It's going against the grain of how we move normally in, in the world. But in the context of bhakti, what happens? We're not just emptying the heart out. We're putting Krishna in. We're filling the heart up, really. And so if a young girl falls in love with a young boy or a young boy falls in love with a young girl, what happens? The mind goes there automatically. If you try to put something in the way of that, it will only serve to drive them that much further down the path of their romantic pursuit. So this is the idea of bhakti. Krishna is beautiful. Krishna is charming. Krishna is attractive. And if you have difficulty relating to him in some way, Mahaprabhu comes to help us. Then. The way that we can, he, Krishna is coming as Mahaprabhu to help us that much more. As a sannyasin, and a, a devotee, as a, as a sadhaka, a charjalila, if we become attached to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then automatically we'll develop love for Radha and Govinda. But it, and he's oh, so charming, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the whole of Nadia, conquered by him in his youth, Nimai Pandit. It was a place of learning and uh, scholarship and pedantry and so forth. And uh, as just a just a young lad, Mahaprabhu conquered the whole of Nadia with his learning. The whole land completely charmed by him. And 
his beautiful wife, Vishnu Priya, Lakshmi herself. And to think of how charmed the land of Nadia became by him, and then to think of how, for the, our sake, he left and took the, tr- the trouble of, uh, of sannyas and so forth. How can we not be drawn to his person? As a, just a lad of just turned 25, think about it, 25 years old. I was talking with Tadia this morning, and, and uh, we were uh, reflecting on how I was, uh, when, when circumstances presented themselves such that I felt with my heart and conviction that the best in my pursuit of fulfilling the desires of my Gurudev, it would be in my interest to move independently of of the society that he formed and under the guidance of Pujapada Maharaj. I was only about 35 years old. That's pretty young. Then he encouraged me to be a teacher and so forth. I'm a 58 now. I can remember when I was 22 and 23 and, and joined to the young age, very young. So you can imagine the boy just turned 25 and come to Jagannath Puri as a sannyasi and the wise and old Sarvabhoma, the most intelligent man in all of India, grave and sober fellow, seeing this young boy and is attracted to him and charmed by him. And of course he conquered all of all of Jagannath Puri as well. So anyway, the point is that uh, if we hear a little bit about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, we hear about Krishna, you actually fall in love with them. This is our, our bhakti. And as we'll go on, we'll see here, in terms of what Rupa Goswami is explaining in his Upadeshamrita, it's really an, an effortless effort. So to inordinately lay stress on controlling the mind, and even I get these questions sometimes when I travel at different places about how to control the mind, how to control the senses, and uh, devotees are researching different topics in psychology and other schools of thought and how to incorporate that into bhakti for for controlling the mind and so forth. This is all prayasya. Atyahara prayasya prajalpo niyamagraha janasangas jalolyam cha sadbhiv bhakti vinashati bhakti vinash Vinash means destroy. Bhakti Vinash, this Rupa Goswami says, this should be avoided. This is our second verse of Upadesh Amrita. The first verse speaks about controlling the urges of mind and senses and so forth. And we've discussed it, we're extending that discussion now. It speaks about it, Bhakti Vinodhaka says, in a conditional way, and the second verse in a constitutional way. In other words, the second verse is telling us directly, that when it says atyahara, ati, ahar. Ahar means to eat, and ati means ati, too much. Atihar. And when you say eating too much destroys bhakti, what is the implication? The implication is that there's eating in bhakti, some eating. When we say jibhavegam, controlling the tongue, does it mean that we should stop eating, stop tasting? In some schools, yes, 
pretty much that's the case. And you have your yogin breatharians. Uh, I've met some living in the Himalayas and so forth. It's a nothing to us. It's, it's a huge, sounds like a huge and mystical and spiritual accomplishment, but it is not spiritual, even to stop eating. Renunciation in itself is not spiritual. It looks spiritual to us. We will think it is because it seems otherworldly, mystical, and so forth. But it's, uh, in and of itself, it's selfish. It's, I don't want to suffer. I want to end suffering, for example. Gyanmar, Buddhism. I don't want to suffer. I want to enjoy on the one side, karma, and I don't want to suffer. It's very self-centered. There's no attraction to Bhagwan. Bhakti is about what to do for him, what he wants. And when you get all the way to Braj and Vrindavan Bhakti, then they really are coming close to his heart. That's what I say, like keeping him awake at night. You're that interested in me. You're so interested in me that you are finding things out about me that even I don't know. I need to go to you to find out about myself, my sweetness, what I'm like, my charm. I see it in your eyes, how you're beholding me. You're seeing something in me that, uh, that even I, I am unacquainted with. This is the the kind of absorption that they uh, exemplify. This is the implication. So, so this is a big thing. This is this is real idea of selflessness. And what appears to be selfless in Gyanmarg is actually very selfish. I don't want to suffer. And because I found doing things is painful, I don't want to do anything. I just want to sit quietly. Yes, there's some overt, overtly speaking, not exploiting, so abstract kind of form of love, not exploiting. But it doesn't take into consideration the fact that we have some duty to do. We are uh, part of a whole, and uh, we're a serving part to connect with this. This is school of bhakti. So, no. Atyahara means there is there's some eating, but not too much. Atyahara. So he says, he wants to tell us, Rupa Goswami, that, that at the saying, control these urges and so forth, there's a place for them in bhakti. So there's some eating, for example. Eating, we talked a little bit about it in relation to jivabhegam, controlling the urge of the tongue. Of course, we come to Krishna Prashad and how we should think upon taking prasad, that we're, we're tasting food that's been tasted by him, how he must have tasted it. This should be the preoccupation, not how it tastes to me, not prepared with a desire to taste it oneself and so forth. We discuss these things to some extent, but it's very interesting to think about how the school of bhakti uh, takes this um, eating, which is so central to living, they say you are what you eat sometimes. And um, unfortunately, many people live to eat instead of eating to live. This is the real idea, of full idea of eating to live. But um, it's, as I say, it's so central to, uh, to life. And to take that then and, and have application 
in uh, spiritual culture, sadhana, to incorporate that. It's, it couldn't be more, as I've used the term before, more user-friendly. Of course, ati ahar, ahar, it is also mentioned in the Amongst Bhatta Goswamis, Nidra Hara Bihara Kadi Bijito. Nidra, sleeping, Ahara, eating, Nidra Hara, and other sensual desires. They conquered over these things. Nidra Hara Bihara Kadi Bijito. So it's some, sometimes, again, the San Francisco, we have to conquer eating and conquer sleeping. And, and so devotees will sleep less and go on all types of fasts and. Uh, and so forth. And Prabhupada uh, was fond of asking people questions like this when someone would meet him and Prabhupada would offer prasad and they would say, Today I'm, I'm fasting. So, some occasions Prabhupada would meet with people like that. And they were, they had their reasons, so Prabhupada would ask, Why? Why are you fasting? For what purpose? What is the idea behind? to cleanse my system, or this or that, or the other thing. So we don't fast unless it's favorable for bhakti, for pleasing the Lord, for remembering Him better. Fasting will be conducive, then we'll do that. We have different days of fasting, and so the whole idea of it is not to fast. The whole idea is to remember Krishna. But again, sometimes it becomes an inordinate emphasis on fasting and so forth. All these these type of things can all be adjusted. They have a purpose to them. Of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We have to come to that in Niyamagraha, which also comes in this in this verse. Following the rules without knowing the purpose behind them. Huge problem. With this emphasis, they conquered eating, they conquered sleeping and so forth, but we follow the verse of Srinivasa charge a little further. Nidra Harabi Harakadi Vidito Sankyapupakanama Gana Atibhi. How did they do it? How did the Goswamis conquer over eating and sleeping and so forth? Sankyapupakanama Gana by regularly chanting the holy name. By preoccupying themselves with this. Naturally the, these other interests diminished. So, anyway, Atyahari says, too much eating. But it means more than eating, it means, because if it meant only eating, then there might be some redundancy. Having said previously in the other verse, we should control the, the tasting. Tasting and, and the stomach. So, quantity and quality. As I said this morning, the belly wants a quantity of food and the tongue wants a quality of food. These things should be Controlled, not by stopping from eating, but by taking prasad and by satisfying the the, the belly and the, the tongue of Bhagwan. But beyond that, to avoid any redundancy, Bhaktivinoda Thakur has emphasized Atya Ahar Ahar here means means all that there is to life, which means all the life of. Uh, in our uh, human experience is sense gratification, sense indulgence. Life is bringing the senses in touch with the sense objects. This is what's giving us life. Of course, it's a very poor idea of life, but li- anyway, life is, life is sense gratification. 
therefore he'll make the point, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, you cannot do away with it. It's impossible. So some eating must be there, some indulgence must be there, so. But not too much. So bhakti, again, is very friendly. It's not too much about renunciation. It's not too much about enjoyment. It accepts both. These two sides of bhog and tyag, bhakti is like the mainstream from the glacier of the Ganga that other smaller streams, if they connect with, will make it to the Bay of Bengal. So jnana and karma, if they can connect with bhakti, they can be harmonized with bhakti, then they have some some value. Otherwise, not. You never get to the ocean of Krishna bhakti by them. So, if it's favorable for Krishna's enjoyment, for, for Krishna's pleasure, we will enjoy. If it's unfavorable, then we will renounce. This is our kind of... the. Uh, the hub of our orbit and consideration of enjoying and renouncing. Therefore, Rupa Goswami says, uh, we have to be a little disposed towards enjoyment and a little disposed towards renunciation, some balance. Extreme on either side will take us to karma marg or jnana marg. So we should also see ourselves in the context of bhakti and which, how we're being pulled in one of these ex- polar opposites of the other and see to that, that we can make the focus the, 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 our attraction to bhakti itself so atyahara not eating too much but some eating some you have to even the monastic has to satisfy his or her senses to some extent they have, have to eat something have, to have some shelter and so forth so also the idea is it will be different for different people so we should not try to rule over everyone and make the same standard for everyone. People will have different capacities. And we have to be honest and find find the um, appropriate situation for ourselves. One man and woman will need a big house. And another man and woman will need only a small cottage. You can't force everyone to have a small cottage. No, but we have to, we can insist that everyone be honest with themselves. Of course, that's a lot to ask, unfortunately, in this world. But that is our insistence. Satam, truthfulness. This is another word for devotee. So we should speak about this in such a way. We should discuss about this in such a way that this point comes to bear on us. That we we have some obligation to be honest, and we have some. And, and we have intelligence and it should be used. And we have to think about all these things for ourselves. It's not just you come here and get all the answers and it's, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, some kind of mechanical thing. I've got it all now. This is how, how it works. And then you just go and repeat it to somebody else and feel, feel more important than you are. No. You have to think about it. You have to think about it dynamically and apply it. And you have to be honest and sincere. And you'll understand what somebody else's standard of necessity for sense gratification is may be different from mine. 
give some trust, benefit of the doubt. They're being honest, you're being honest. Insist upon this only. So we need some comfort level. In other words, bhakti is about giving, love is about giving, but unless we are at a certain level of contentment, materially speaking, we're not going to be able to think about giving because we haven't got enough to feel whole ourselves. Of course, you're never going to become whole by adding things onto your life, but by letting go of the things that are only allowing you to experience a portion of what you are. But nonetheless, that can't happen all at once. It has to happen in the context of bhakti, that renunciation. So that's like, you know, when the fruits are ripe, they, they, they fall from the tree. Well, not quite. You have to shake it a little bit or you, you pick them. They come off more easily, more readily. Some of them fall, right? But So some, some effort there. But But the point is that we need to some extent to feel some wholeness. So therefore, for example, we have uh, much room and scope for people to marry in bhakti. Because most people don't feel whole without a partner. So they feel emotionally whole. Then they're, they've got that figured out. Of course, relationships are difficult, but <laughs> at least anyway, they've got it figured out and they, and they feel in a stronger position and they're able to, to practice, to apply themselves. If the mind is too much disturbed because we haven't got enough, where ahara is not ati, it's, it's, I don't know how you say it, but, but less than enough, less than too much, <laughs> not enough, then we, a mind will be too disturbed to even practice bhakti, we'll speak of sharing the experience of bhakti with others. So some level of material satisfaction is required and allowed for. And it would be different for different people. Obviously, obviously, it would be different for for a monastic and a lay person. But in the context of the laity, also, then there will be so many different degrees, different mindsets, and and uh, and so forth. Some people will be land landowners, and right, and some people will be renters. <laughs> so. Be generous. We should be generous in our dealing with other and expect this. You be honest with yourself. And they expect the same of you. Not try to fit everybody in one one box like this. this is not the teaching of Mahaprabhu. We find amongst his associates a variety of uh, of types of devotees. Strict renunciates and wealthy people as well. Dwaita Charge was quite a wealthy gentleman. Brahman and so forth. And uh, some of his associates couldn't manage their money properly, householders, and he would put somebody in charge. Don't let him give all his money away. He can't do that. And uh, so on all different standards. This should be the unifying standard. What? That we insist upon personal integrity in the path, honesty to the approach. That will harmonize everything. And again, the very word, satam, truthful, it's synonymous with devotee. Satam prasanga, mamavira sambhido, this mention. And dharma prajita kaitavo, droparamo nirmat saranam, satam. So, some eating, some 
sense gratification necessary, but not too much. And nidrahara, atyahara, atiahara, prayashas, cha. Second thing he says, so too much sense indulgence, that will be vinash, bhakti. Bhagavad Gita says, bhogaishvaya prasaktanam kayaprahita chetasam. Vyabhasayatmika buddhir ekehakurim. Samadho navidhiyate. Bhogaishvaya prasaktanam kayaprahita chetasam. Vyabhasayatmika buddhir samadho navidhiyate. Bhogaishvaya. Too much bhogaishvaya. In a person who has too much of this, then interest in bhakti can come. They cannot get nishta. Bhogaishvaya prasaktanam tayaprita chetasam. Vyabhasayatmika buddhi. They cannot be exclusively dedicated to Gurudev. Yasya prasada bhagavat prasado. Yasya prasada nagati kutopi. They cannot live according to this. This is intelligence. You want spiritual intelligence? This is the most intelligent. Do Guru Bhakti. There is no form in which Krishna comes to us more completely and more directly than in the form of Sri Guru. There is no form in which he tenders more to our personal situation and need. What a compassionate form. Our situation is so pathetic. And he comes just to tender to that. Their attention should be given there. This is the wisdom of Vishwanath. He says, Yasya prasadat bhagavat prasadu Yasya prasadat agati kutopi Prabhupada would like to cite this in another verse where the same line is used. Vyabhasayatmika buddhi in, in Gita. Vyabhasayatmika buddhi is like one-mindedness. What is it? Yasyat prasadat bhagavat prasadu yasyat prasadat nagati kutopi Guru Bhakti. Yuga Goswami says, ordinarily, in bhakti, service to the guru is an anga of the angi of bhakti, is a limb of the body of bhakti. In other words, we serve guru in the context of serving Krishna. So if we were to serve Krishna, O magyana timirandasya gyanandana salakaya chaksurumilitam dinatasmai shri gurave Our obeisance to our guru, then we serve Krishna. Taking the Guru's permission, we make the offering and so forth. And so, you cannot do bhakti without this. You cannot do uh, Vishnu bhakti, archanam, for the ishta, the deity, without the mantra. The deity and the mantra, his mantra are same. Mantra unlocks the mystery of his seva. Mantra comes from Guru, that's his system, through Guru Parampara, mantra diction. So, the general idea is that. Guru, service to the Guru is, is an anga, limb of the body, angi, of bhakti, Vishnu bhakti. But some people, Jiva Goswami says in Bhakti Sandarbha, do it the other way around. They make Guru bhakti the angi and Krishna bhakti the anga. And Krishna likes this very much. This is very a very intelligent idea. So this kind of intelligence and this kind of focus in bhakti that will cause our practice, this one-mindedness of bhakti, bhogaishvarya prasakta, with this too much atiyahar, this will never come in us. 
Prahlad says it in another way. Matirna krishne paratasvatova mitobi padita grihabratanam adantako bi vishatam tamisram punapunas charvita charvananam matirna krishne matirna krishne paratasvatova one who has grihabrata this is bhogaishwari grihabrata we should take a vow of commitment in relationship like marriage vow, that's true. Vow means brat and griha means home. But he says griha bratanam. A vow, here he means, that's why we don't call our home, our, our couples, there's two terms, griha medi and grihasta. Griha medinam. What does Sukadev say when he opens his speech to the Raj in Bhagavatam in second canto? Uh, there he says uh, they have many 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 topics to discuss they don't have vacho, vacho vegam the vacho ve- they have not mastered this talking about so many things and, and determination for enjoyment it means I've set out to make my kingdom my house put my fence and dog I make my world here this is the center. So, Grihabrata, a determination, it means, to, to enjoy material life. Prahlad says, as much as this is our determination, this is our preoccupation, we've committed to this. This is first and, and, and foremost. This is everything. And then this interest in Krishna is just not going to come within us. We're not going to get the determination to serve Krishna. So that has to be tempered. Therefore, in married life, for example, in holy kind of uh, union, emotional union, there should be another factor. Each party should be more attached to their guru than to one another. That will make for a happy, <laughs> happy marriage. They will have so many disagreements and then they can... Get the, they can agree on this. Whatever Gurudev says, that we accept. No problem. <laughs> so, don't do this then. That is Bhogaishwarya. Too much interested in building your own kingdom only. There's some scope for that. This is the generosity of bhakti. They don't find it in Gyan Marg and Yoga Marg, really. In Bhakti Marg, we find it. But then to take advantage of that and this and just become as a sense enjoyer in the name of bhakti, that's very unbecoming. And there's so much scope. Like I say, someone can have a big house. It's not a problem. They may be a big person, and that's just the way they are. They're a landowner type, not a renter. That's okay. And they will use their resources accordingly in Krishna Bhakti, Guru Seva, and so forth. So, anyway, atyahara prayashascha. So, too much enjoying and too much endeavor. What's the time now? Okay, we've gone on about one one word, atyahara. Atyahara prayashascha. So, prayashas is a big word too. That's another hour or two. He says that uh, there should not be too much enjoyment. Atyahara, and there too much, should be not be too much 
effort. So we'll be curious about that. We shouldn't try our hardest? Is that it? No. So I'll explain this next. It's bhakti is an effortless kind of effort. But for now, I'll stop and ask if there are any questions. And we'll continue with this Upadesha Amrita discussion in the morning. Yes. Yeah, you said that uh, there should not be one standard of sense gratification for everybody, but our previous acharyas set such a standard, and it's a strict standard, like for uh, like for regulative principles, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, um, first of all, those are general guidelines that. Um, we're told that not observing will have a negative effect upon us. But at the same time, the idea behind it is, again, the principle is one, to be honest and to realize that these things are not helpful to my bhakti. They won't help me. There's going to be a stage we call it anishta bhajana kriya. So what does it mean? You know, it's not steady. It means that we're, we have desire. We're going to succumb to that. This is going to happen for most people. So we should try to avoid it because we know it's not in our interest. But it may happen that we set a standard for ourselves or an expectation and we cannot meet it. That should be met with some sincerity and remorse and further application in hearing and chanting. And then the, the shortcoming that we experienced is made up for. This is the teaching of Bhagavatam. When we fall short, how will we repair the situation? If you fall on the ground, you have to use the ground to get up, right? There's nothing below the ground. So if you go to the top, to Krishna, with a high ideal, and you fall short, succumbing to your lower nature, and so forth. Where will you go to rectify that? You have to go to Krishna. You can't go to anybody else. So, with remorse, you pray for the strength to do better the next time. And that remorse in itself, that that makes up for the problem. This is a huge topic, and we'll go on about this as we discuss further. This, this second verse of um, of Upadeshamrit. But at the same time, that aside, I think we're probably talking about one thing here. <laughs> Not four, <laughs> for the most part. And we, we're talking about sex. So, because most people here, they're not very interested in eating meat and it's not very difficult to, to practice a life of nonviolence and... Uh, and show kindness to other jivas and so forth. And even people are vegans and they want to go even even further and so forth in our own group here. So um, there's, a, there's a, put it in Prabhupada's terms. Of course, there's a, this is a reference from Bhagavatam, Raj Parikshit's chasing out Kali and so forth and giving him some place to stay. And so the topic, uh, the, t- the, the principles as... It, used to call them, can be explained in different ways. And how they've been applied 
is not the same for everybody for all times and all circumstances. What we're familiar with is a little bit is, is how Prabhupada did it. A little bit, I say, because what we're more familiar with is how some of his disciples understood it and insisted it should be applied when oftentimes they themselves didn't apply it, which causes a huge problem, a huge hypocrisy in the name of bhakti. So what Prabhupada taught was one thing. And um, yes, he, he did teach that there should be no intoxication. and That's not too hard. Some people come from that background and in, in time of distress and disconcertment and so forth may, may go there, but not too much. Intoxication, meat eating, no problem there. Not too many gamblers here. Um, so you think about that for a minute. And then and no illicit sex, and then he defined it in a particular way. And there's a reference to Skanda Purana also where it's mentioned that Vaishnavas have sex only for procreation. So, But let's talk about gambling for a minute. We laugh because nobody has a problem here with gambling. There are some, there are some gamblers. But you can see that it's a, in a different time, in a different circumstance it meant something more to people or there is an extended meaning of it. I take in this way that one should have an honest means of livelihood and not try to beat the system and and so forth. Because an honest honest labor according to one's own propensity that has purifying effect. That's why they call it honest labor. It's good for you. It's a commitment and it's it's a it's a contribution, you know, on some level to the society that you're really plugged into. Even though you want to unplug from it, you can't because you have desires. So you participate in it honestly, and it brings about some purification. So, anyway, this, this the uh, sexual restrictions. Is, this is something that is universal. Everybody agrees that sex should be restricted on some level. They just draw the line differently. So... Um, then, even in the context of Prabhupada's standard, the way he wanted his disciples to apply themselves, well, you could have as many children as you wanted, <laughs> or you could have one, or you could have none. <laughs> so there's uh, room for for variety there. But beyond that, to be honest with you, um, Prabhupada, when he would be addressed as he was sometimes, in private with concern about this by someone whose propensity for sexual indulgence exceeded the standard that he expected. And I'm privy to certain instances in where, where he was approached by his disciples with this issue. He dealt with it in a very different way than your you know, local temple president might be kick you out of the temple or something. I don't know what, it, what it's like these days, but I'm talking about his institution, ISKCON. He dealt with it very differently. He said, hey, and then do like this. Adjust and so forth. So the point is that these things should be applied. And this is the standard that we see by the charges, realize people in a dynamic way to foster progress. 
So if we restrict as we should, or if we seek to harness as we should sexual proclivity, then we have to do it in a way that will set a standard by which we see there's actual progress. If the standard causes repression, then as we spoke this morning, you, you haven't accomplished that, have you? If the standard you set causes repression, then it's only increasing the desire. Obviously, it's coming out in another way, but it's not going away, repression being the other side of attachment. So the idea is to set a standard, and that may be different for different people. Now, in a big organization where a guru has so many disciples all over the world and so forth, he may not... It's less than an ideal situation. We may think, I'd like to be part of a really big mission. It's actually less than ideal. The more ideal situation is to have closer company with the guru who can deal with each individual and kind of tailor, make the the practice. That's the idea. You come to the guru and he teaches you how to do bhajana kriya. So anybody who, who knows me, and you all do, to some extent, you you, you know that I have deal with everybody a little differently. It's very similar, but, but, but different also with regard to these things and all types of things. So you can't do that in the big mission. You set out a standard, and but you, then it's expected that when you see, for example, Prabhupada making an adjustment, if you're aware of that, then you have the wisdom to do so as well. And everybody, everybody may not, so then you get this picture that you've kind of brought up. There's only one standard with regard to this. Everybody has to follow it. It doesn't work for everybody and so on. But it's really not like that. So, And it would be, would be counterproductive to... And it has been, in some instances, to have it applied like that. So we should apply that principle in a way that it's progressive, that actually called, it actually helps people to harness the, the, the desire, the impetus, the urge. And that's going to require some restriction, some common sense, and then we go from there. So, another question? Any question? Yes, turn off. Um, I was reading the Bhagavad Gita the, uh, some time ago and uh, came uh, to the uh, part where Krishna uh, speaks about himself, how we can see him in the nature, he's the taste of water, the water is the ocean. And this and, mm-hmm. um, then I was thinking about uh, Mahaprabhu when he was like. Uh, Seeing, seeing an ordinary hill, he thought it was Govardhan. Uh, could it, I'm not thinking, could it also mean, where Krishna speaking about himself, how we see him in nature, that could there be, be another meaning that uh, these correspondence also to deepen us in some way? When Krishna speaks in the Gita about prominent manifestations of nature as being representative of himself, of, of bodies of water. I am the ocean, as you said. Of, in water, I am the taste, and, and so forth. And at the end of that, he says, but this is anyway something, but you should know that um, all beautiful and powerful things, I haven't mentioned them all here, 
that I'm represented there. The idea behind that is that, is that uh, prominent manifestation of nature should serve to remind us of, of Bhagawan. And in remembrance of Bhagawan is uh, a cause to remember him and to become absorbed in, in thought of him is also called Anadipana. We generally refer, refer to that in the context of Rasa Tattva, discussing Rasa. So long before one attains Rasananda, one will have to remember Krishna, right? So this is kind of a real, real basic way. It's kind of remembering God. It's vibhuti, powerful, of, you know, trees in Northern California, I am the redwood, something like that kind of thing. It can be extended to, uh, you know, of cold places, I am Lapland. <laughs> you know, something like that. <laughs> and um, this is kind of a general remembrance of God in terms of God's power and influence and our dependence upon Him and so forth. And, and it's, it's, it's quite about on a lower level than tasting rasa and, and remembering, seeing a, a river and remembering the Jamuna and all the Leela of Krishna and so forth. But not entirely divorced in as much as that which causes a stimulus for, re, for remembering in a deeper way our ideal. That's the kind of general idea of Udipana. It's not quite explained like that in the Gita. Mahaprabhu's condition is that the Prem has peaked to such a point that ordinarily in Bhav, Bhav Bhakti, then certain aspects of our Ishta, of our, of our Lord, Krishna, as Gopinath, as Subal Sakha, as Yashodanandana, in, in Gopi Bhav, in Sakya Rasa or Vatsali Rasa, for example, as these names uh, refer to to him, then there will be certain things about Jashodanandan and Vatsalya Subalsaka, Gopi, Gopinath, and so forth that are Udipanas for heightening our stai, our dominant emotion that causes us to love him as Yashodanandan or Radhanath and so forth. But when it reaches a peak that we see in, in Mahaprabhu, very in, inflamed, yeah, then ordinary things in the world become Udipana, like any river. He saw the Jamuna, any hill as the as the Govardhan, or the idea of the cloud, the rain cloud, and that's remembering Krishna's he sees the rain cloud and the lightning and he sees you know, Krishna and, uh, and the effulgence of Radha that shines light on him. And so this is very, very extreme state of Prem, extraordinary state. And that's quite different than from seeing the ocean and oh, it's powerful and and this is a manifestation of Krishna. But there are some similarities, so I like the way you're thinking about it theistically in a 
the creative way. Is that good? So if you have any questions, don't feel shy to bring them up. I may not be able to answer them, but I'll try. All right, so we'll stop there. See Chaitanya Mahaprabhu ki jai, Dai Chand ki jai.